The following program is brought to you by Caltech. All right. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the 2011 Caltech Space Challenge. This afternoon, this is our eighth lecture in our lecture series sponsored by Lockheed Martin. And today we have the privilege of welcoming uh, Mr. Josh Hopkins from Lockheed Martin, who is a space exploration architect who's been working on this problem of sending people to an asteroid for the past four or five years. So without further ado, Mr. Josh Hopkins. Thanks. Well, I, I didn't actually see the schedule and agenda for this event until a few days ago, so I didn't realize how many eminent people you have already had talk to you about asteroids. Um, you've had Don and Paul Abel and Andy Chang and, and Damon Landau and a number of others. Um, so there, there may not be much that I can add to that. Uh, what I'd like to do is, in my role as a what we call an exploration architect or a systems engineer, I'm sort of supposed to pull a lot of different ideas together, which is very much like what you're trying to do in your one-week effort to design an asteroid mission. So I'd like to give you one perspective on how we've done that. And in particular, I'd like to give you a chance to ask a lot of questions. Don't feel like you have to wait till the end. Um, you know, please help direct this discussion the way to the topics that you'd like to hear about. Um, and I will try not to be too, uh, too duplicative of some of the presentations that you have already seen. Um, so, and, and asking me leading questions is a way to lead me away from the boring stuff if you've already seen some of this. So to give you some background, um, we first started looking in depth at asteroid missions about four or five years ago. This was a couple of years before um, the, the asteroid mission became a, a, a visible thing in the Augustine Commission and the, the President's decision. And honestly, I actually originally set out to show that these asteroid missions wouldn't work. Um, I, I thought I had some ideas about the orbital mechanics that turned out not to be true. Uh, so, so follow those hunches and then be willing to recognize when they turn out to be wrong. It turns out that there really are some interesting opportunities here. Now, to, to, to take you back a little bit to that time frame, at that point, we had been awarded the Orion contract to start developing the spacecraft. And the national plan was to go do a lunar exploration mission called Constellation. We were not trying to argue with that. Um, we were not trying to set up a, a, a competing idea to that. We were trying to find a way to do an asteroid mission that would complement that. And that meant it had to be very inexpensive, and it had to use this, the kinds of systems that were already being designed for that other mission. So Plymouth Rock isn't necessarily the best way to do an asteroid mission if you were starting from scratch, which I think is what most of you are doing. But I think it does offer a useful benchmark as kind of the lower bound, the least expensive, least capable, simplest, earliest kind of asteroid mission you might be able to do with humans. And so that kind of helps set the stage for um, more capable uh, systems. And, and maybe thinking about the problem without starting off with a lot of assumptions about what kinds of asteroids we have to go to or what kinds of capabilities we have to have. Uh, there's a lot more information on our website. There's a brochure. There's a study report. And I also brought along reprints of a, a magazine article that came out last year that I think John will hand out later. Um, so links are here. One other point I need to make is that this is all Lockheed Martin's internal work. This is not funded or advised by NASA. So please don't infer from the fact that we have the Orion contract that this represents NASA's opinion or NASA's planning in any way. So one of the ideas or, or principles we started out with when we were doing this was we've gone through a lot of studies of spacecraft and missions before, and most of them get canceled before very long. So 
we knew that in order for this to be meaningful and useful, it had to be a mission that we could do relatively quickly in the smallest number of NASA administrator cycles as possible or congressional cycles as possible. And that probably means we shouldn't rely on very many new technologies unless we absolutely have to have them. And it turns out there are very few new technologies you absolutely have to have. But we're not trying to do sort of the simplest stunt and then end there. We view this as being an excellent stepping stone in a sequence of missions we've laid out, beginning with a mission that would explore the lunar far side in the South Pole Aiken Basin from the Earth-Moon L2 point. That's sort of a 30-day kind of mission that's not too far uh, into deep space. Then you can do a sequence of asteroid missions. And one of the great things about asteroids is that there are lots of them they're a diverse population, and they are differing degrees of difficulty. So you can start out with a relatively easy asteroid, say a six-month trip to 10 or 20 or 30 times farther than the moon, and then a few years later, pick a more difficult asteroid. And you can add in the new kinds of capabilities like regenerative life support or more advanced propulsion as you need them and as they become available, rather than something like a Mars mission where you kind of have to have a whole lot of new things all come together at once for that mission to work. So after the asteroid mission, we've also laid out um, a mission we call Red Rocks. Um, it's a, a mission to Deimos, the outer moon of Mars. And then that would be sort of the last step before a, a Mars landing itself. But obviously for today, I'm going to focus on, on Plymouth Rock, which was our asteroid mission. So when I said, you know, think of the simplest, easiest kinds of technologies and missions that we could do, here's an example of what we came up with. We used the Orion spacecraft as a starting point. Obviously, we are slightly biased in our selection that way. Um, but it really is a, a good starting point in the sense that it had been through a great deal of design detail so that we were able to really dig into it uh, at a pretty deep level and figure out what the requirements are for, for a deep space mission. And it was designed for a relatively challenging lunar mission, which turns out to be fairly similar to the requirements for an asteroid mission. So what you see here is a relatively unchanged Orion spacecraft on the right. On the left is a modified Orion spacecraft that has a bigger um, cylindrical habitat in the place of the crew module and, and better accommodations for spacewalking. But when I talk about a, a less complex mission, I'm talking about things like storable chemical propulsion. So this uses the... Um, nitrogen tetroxide, uh, monomethylhydrazine propulsion system that Orion has. Really, you'd like something a little bit bigger in terms of total impulse. But you don't have to have electric propulsion. You don't even really have to have LOX hydrogen propulsion for the very easiest asteroids. Um, using either of those is a plausible design choice. But, but don't jump to those assuming that you have to have them. We also have solar arrays. Rather than uh, something like nuclear power or, in particular, fuel cells, all of the spacecraft that the U.S. has built, human spacecraft that the, that the U.S. has built in the past, like Apollo and the shuttle, have had fuel cells which limit them to something like two weeks of mission duration before you have to come home. Um, so, and this gives you some idea of roughly the, the size arrays we need for the power level, power level requirements for human missions. They're, they're not that big because modern solar arrays have gotten remarkably good. Um, you'll notice also, for instance, there's a high-gain antenna. Um, that's one of the big differences between, you know, near-Earth, uh, let, let me rephrase that, low-Earth orbit spacecraft. One of the things we have to get used to is that near-Earth objects frequently aren't, right? So uh, spacecraft that stay much closer to Earth often don't have the kinds of features you need for a deep space uh, mission. 
one of the other less obvious things that we learned designing Orion for the lunar mission is that you approach safety and the design features in a very different way for a spacecraft that's going to be more than, say, six hours away from home. The shuttle or the, on the space station, if something goes wrong, you can land relatively quickly. On a vehicle that's going uh, you know, to the moon distance or much farther, you basically have to be able to survive failures with the resources you've got, and that means you have to be able to prevent um, systemic failures that are going to cause problems. So that's partly why there are two solar arrays instead of one. It's why you see, for instance, we have one big main engine, but then we also have eight smaller engines that are used for smaller maneuvers, but they're sized really to be a backup for that main engine. Uh, and similarly, there's a lot of redundancy in terms of internal systems. There's also um, sort of operational robustness. So, you know, addressing safety in ways other than just redundancy. An example is that Orion is designed to be operable with the cabin depressurized. That has a couple of safety uh, reasons behind it. One is that if you have a cabin leak, of course, you want to be able to survive that. So the life support systems are designed to be able to feed the spacesuits inside the cabin. The switches and the displays are designed so that you can operate them with spacesuit gloves on, which was true of Apollo, but not of most other spacecraft. Um, and, and actually, one of the reasons for that um, requirement originally was that for the lunar mission, if the crew is coming back up from the lunar surface in their lunar lander and they get to the spacecraft Orion waiting in orbit, and they can't get the door open. They need a backup way to get in. So there was actually a backup contingency that you could go out into space in your spacesuit, spacewalk over, and get in the side hatch. Uh, actually, let me talk briefly about the asteroids we show uh, in some of these pictures, and we'll talk a little bit more about them uh, later in the presentation. As Andy and probably Paul and others have mentioned earlier in the week, the asteroids that are easy to get to are almost all very small. In fact, they are all small, depending on your expectations of what counts as small. Um, the longer you look at these, the more a 30-meter object seems really big. Uh, but, but compared to normal planetary science targets, they're very small. And that means that they're actually a whole different category of objects from any of the asteroids that we have pretty much any data at all on. Andy showed the chart earlier that says... Objects bigger than 140 or 200 meters have spin rates lower than two hours. And the hypothesized explanation for that is that they are mostly or all rubble pile asteroids like Itakawa, meaning that they're piles of rubble, loose rocks held together by their own gravity. Smaller objects that rotate faster shouldn't be rubble piles because they should fly apart. So the hypothesis is that many of those are probably or one hypothesis is that many of those are probably single monolithic chunks of rock or iron or other material. Um, and particularly when you start looking at spin rates of a few minutes, they all, they all have negative surface gravity effectively over, over large areas, which means that they probably shouldn't have dust or loose material on their surface the way every asteroid that we've actually seen does. Now, from what I understand, the, the radar and the thermal imaging of even small asteroids suggests that, in fact, they all do have something other than just a bare surface. Um, I have had astronomers tell me, tell me in the past that clearly that could not happen. So the fact that the observational data suggests that it did implies to me that the astronomers don't always know exactly what these objects look like. Um, and in fact, there has just recently been some work by Dan Shearers at the University of Colorado Boulder suggesting that if you had uh, asteroids that were purely powder, 
there's enough cohesion in, in those kinds of uh, conglomerates that they actually could hold themselves together under surprisingly fast rotation rates. So objects this small are either monolithic or they aren't. Um, they either have smooth surfaces with no dust on them or they are completely made of dust. We don't really know. And the data that we have from other much bigger asteroids is interesting and useful but not particularly conclusive. And that obviously makes it very difficult to decide how you design things like anchoring systems or how astronauts are going to operate around these objects. And by the way, that's generally true for everything below, say, 150 or 200 meters. So when we're debating, do we go to a 30-meter object or a 20-meter object or a 90-meter object, those all count as small uh, by the, the standards of even the small bodies community. Um, one other point is that these are all, in planetary science terms, fast rotators, or almost all of them, meaning that they rotate faster than two hours. Now, to put that in perspective, in planetary science terms, the International Space Station is also a fast rotator. It rotates every 90 minutes inertially as it goes around the Earth. So what counts as fast rotation from a scientific perspective versus an astronaut operations perspective can be very different. Um, I don't know what the right lower limit on, uh, on rotation rate should be. I don't think it's two hours or 90 minutes, which some people have suggested. But I would agree that a, a, an object that's going around at one RPM is probably not something you want to send astronauts to. Okay, one of the key design principles in keeping your mission easy is to keep the mission duration short. This affects all sorts of things. You've already talked about radiation. There's a, there's a big uncertainty in what the biomedical effects are of a given dose of cosmic rays. We can predict to, say, 10 or 20% accuracy what dose astronauts are going to get in a spacecraft of a given design when exposed to a solar flare or cosmic ray flux. But we can only predict to something like a factor of 10 uncertainty what happens to them when they get that, that radiation flux. Pretty much everybody agrees that a duration something like six or seven or maybe eight months is quote unquote safe. And in NASA terms, that means that the odds of causing a, an otherwise non-existent cancerous death or, or death by any other means, are less than 3%. So if you have a, say, 20% chance of dying of cancer anyway, your, your odds can't go higher than 23%. And in practice, what that means is they're 95% confident that that is true. So really, your odds are probably a lot less than that extra 3%. When you start talking about um, you know, a year-long duration, that gets a little iffy. That, you know, that might turn out to be safe if our ideas about radiation exposure are wrong. Uh, when you start talking about two, 18 months or two years, then you're definitely getting into the range where it's pretty hard to justify. There is a big um, variation in what is an allowable dose depending on the gender of the astronaut, the age of the astronaut, and more recently there's also been some work that suggests that people who have never smoked are less likely to get radiation-induced cancer. So that, fortunately, most astronauts have never smoked. Um, so there may be some ways in which that, and they're also just a very healthy population, so that there may be some ways in which the allowable risks for them or the allowable exposures anyway are different from a general population. Uh, and by the way, I should say that this radiation issue, I think, is one of the biggest um, reasons why electric propulsion is probably not a good idea for human asteroid missions. A lot of these other things we can solve by throwing mass at them. Protecting against cosmic rays is really, really hard. So it's, it's not something that you can very easily address. 
Some other advantages of short missions, somewhere around five or six... Yeah, go ahead. Right, the, right, not because of anything about the propulsion system itself, other than it's inherently a low thrust, and therefore the durations tend to be a lot longer. Yeah, if you can come up with an electric propulsion mission that only takes six months, then I don't, you know, I don't mind at all. Uh, I mean, I'm not, not opposed to electric propulsion itself in any way. It's just that most of, because it's a low thrust solution, most of those missions are very long. Um, Short missions can be done with open-loop life support systems, meaning you basically have tanks of water and oxygen and you draw out of them and you throw that away as you are done with it. When you start getting to longer durations, the amount of mass it takes to do that is quite substantial. So you first tend to want to close the water loop um, by recycling water. That's relatively easy to do and it's the most massive component. Oxygen is often next. Food is really hard to recycle. Um, Six-month missions are also within our current experience of microgravity exposure. There have been now lots of astronauts and cosmonauts who have done six or seven or five-month stays on ISS. There is, I believe, only one who's done more than a year continuously. So going much beyond that, you know, might turn out to be okay, but it's well beyond our understanding at this point. And even though we like to think that we... Under yes, question. Yes, the, the comment was about the radiation environment for ISS is completely different than it is for a deep space mission. But in terms of microgravity, the, it's similar. Now, there are very possibly um, cross-coupling effects between microgravity and other things like radiation exposure so that your body's response to microgravity might not be the same in the presence of other aspects of this mission. Um, but at least in terms of the you know, bone degeneration, muscle degeneration, we understand reasonably well what happens up to six or seven months. Um, shorter durations of, of whatever number you pick also simplify a lot of other less obvious things, like just the amount of storage space it takes to, to store all of this stuff. Think about how much toilet paper you go through in six months, and then imagine where that fits in your spacecraft. Um, clothes, you know, spare parts. Um, some design aspects like micrometeorite protection and radiation protection and, and reliability, fault tolerance, mean time between failures, those are all duration-driven things. So the longer your mission is, the more spares you tend to take or the more strings of avionics you tend to add on. Um, one of the things we stumbled across, um, we didn't stumble, we were looking for it, but what we didn't really expect is that trash turns out to be a big problem on missions like this. On a low Earth orbit system like the International Space Station, they have vehicles coming and going every couple of months, bringing new supplies, and they can shove the, the waste and trash in those vehicles and dispose of them. Well, we've all thought about the fact that if you're going out into deep space for six months or a year, you don't have anybody bringing you new supplies, but you also don't have anybody taking away the garbage. So you would very likely need to end up with something like a trash airlock. Um, Skylab had something vaguely similar to that. Just to get, or some other uh, element of the vehicle that you're disposing of, just to get rid of all of the accumulated stuff that, that is not useful anymore. Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about trajectory design issues. Um, I, know, I understand that you are all mostly at least past the phase of picking your target asteroid, and I'm not sure how far along you are in the process of designing your trajectories. I'm going to try to focus on the things that are um, not obvious or that some people aren't, do, uh, aren't automatically figuring out in the process of trajectory design in the hopes that this will be the useful part for you rather than talking about the basics. One of my general points is 
total emission delta V is not really a useful parameter. Um, in a mathematical sense, it actually doesn't mean very much in a system where you're changing the elements that are on the vehicle at different phases in the mission, like if you're leaving behind something um, at the asteroid. And because you're probably using different propulsion systems for the escape from Earth orbit out into a, uh, escape velocity deep space versus the propulsion system to come back, comparing two total numbers doesn't really help you all that much. Instead, what you need to do when you're picking your asteroids or deciding whether they're accessible is actually run through the, uh, the mission sequence with the kinds of propulsion or the kinds of mass elements you're considering using and figure out how those work. As an example, there are some asteroids that have, say you're comparing two asteroids with a six-month mission duration. Many of them will have a three-month out, three-month back kind of sequence. Some of them will have a five-month out, one-month back sequence. So even if they have the same delta V, you may be able to get away with a much smaller part of the spacecraft coming back in that return leg. And you may discover, therefore, that the total mass of the system goes down because you're only pushing that much smaller um, chunk of the spacecraft on the way back. Also, make sure that you don't just use the sort of deterministic average delta Vs that come out of the, the typical calculations. Make sure that if you're rendezvousing any two elements, you've accounted for some propulsion to do that. Make sure you're accounting for trajectory correction maneuvers and flight performance reserve, which basically just means the vehicle never behaves exactly like it's supposed to. There's, so you always have to have some reserve to cover the, the average everyday off-nominal performance, not the failure or contingency kinds of off-nominal performance, but just the, you know, your, your car doesn't get the same miles per gallon every time you drive it, neither does a rocket engine. Um, and another issue is make sure that you, well, you probably don't have time to do all of this in one week, so I'm, I'm not trying to uh, prejudge what you should be showing at the end of the week. But think about how does the allowable launch period uh, work for this asteroid? If you design a solution that can only launch on a single day and still work, then that's not as robust as something that can, can be launched over weeks or months and still reach the asteroid. Now, I also want to talk about a couple of things other than sort of delta Vs that sometimes get forgotten. One of the challenges is the departure declination. This is essentially the, the direction above the equator that your outbound vector has to take to point at the asteroid. A lot of people do these missions just at the energy state level and, and think about the amount of energy you have to get without thinking about which way it's pointing. Many asteroids, especially the ones that come very close to us, require, and especially the ones that are in high uh, inclinations around the sun, require declinations that are very far from Earth's equator. And that means that when you're launching this system, you can't fly due east at a 28.5 degree parking orbit out of the Cape, for instance. You have to fly to some steeper inclination. And that means there's a launch vehicle performance penalty. So some asteroids that look like they have really low delta Vs are actually quite difficult to get to. Um, and, and that also means that if you're just looking at the in-space delta V, that the actual best performance launch date to launch on may not be the day when the delta V is lowest, because there may be some other day when the declination is lower. Um, even if you don't try to figure out this level of detail about your trajectories, at least design a system that would have the flexibility to target different declinations. For example, many people have talked about departing from the International Space Station or departing from something like an Earth-Moon Lagrange point. These are basically fixed points or fixed planes in space, which means that you are constrained by, for example, where the International Space Station is in, in being able to target right ascension and declination. So, 
the asteroid you've picked may be one that you can't actually get to very easily from the International Space Station, or you may have to wait for that orbit to process around the Earth. So you may have to launch a week or two after the optimal theoretical time because that's when ISS will be aligned properly. Earth return is another big um, design consideration that, that many people don't give enough consideration to. Basically, the propulsive delta V is what gets you there and then points you back at Earth. But you can arrive back at Earth with very different entry velocities. To give you some kind of sense of what counts as normal, you know, the, the Earth low Earth orbit return like the space shuttle does is something like 7 kilometers a second. A lunar mission will typically be just a hair over 11 kilometers a second. So you can see there's already a pretty big difference in velocity right there. We're very lucky that many of the asteroids that are accessible basically bring you back to Earth at just barely over escape velocity. So those reentry velocities when you reach the atmosphere are just a little bit higher than what a lunar-designed vehicle is going to see. Now, obviously, I'm partly interested in this because Orion is already designed with a certain uh, thermal protection system. Um, but in terms of, as you're designing your systems from scratch, think about the fact that you'd probably like these systems to be com similar or compatible to uh, the, the hardware you need to do other kinds of missions, because it's very difficult to justify building a very big, expensive human spacecraft for one or two applications. If you can also do lunar missions, um, that's, that's helpful. And then Mars missions, um, I think the best opportunities might be 11.4 kilometers a second, but 11.5 to 12 to 12.5 to you know, much higher is typical for Mars missions. So we worry about things like the, um, both the heat rate and the dynamic pressure that's on the thermal protection materials. You can, you can basically eat through those materials faster which would mean you would need a thicker heat shield. We also worry about the G-loads that the crew is exposed to. The faster you're going, the, the harder you have to decelerate to come to a stop, essentially, when you hit the ground. Um, and these astronauts have been in space long enough that they are not in the peak of health. So there's a limit to how much uh, deceleration and how quickly you can, you can decelerate them. Um, one of, there, there's lots of ways to pick asteroids, and, and one of the popular approaches is once you've got an algorithm that will design the trajectories, just throw everything from the NEO database into your algorithm and let the computer figure it out. That is a perfectly valid way of tackling the problem. It is somewhat inelegant, however. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to offer you a, a method that we have been using to kind of pre-filter which asteroids we look at. Given that we know we want a low delta V and we want a low return velocity, we can tell that we need asteroids that have relatively low inclinations with respect to the Earth. There's, there's celestial mechanics equations that will tell you the, the relative velocity of two things in inclined planes, and they can't be small if they have a big inclination. And many asteroids have very high inclinations. Clearly, we don't want those. We also want something that comes relatively close to the Earth. Um, and we want something that, that uh, you know, is not in a highly elliptical orbit because it's going to have a very different velocity around the sun than Earth will at the same semi-major axis. Turns out there's a handy parameter for approximating the relative velocity, and that is called the Tisserand parameter. It was actually invented or, or conceived, I don't know, 150 years ago or 200 years ago for tracking comets as they are perturbed by the orbit of Jupiter. Uh, and, and here's the equation here. You can calculate it relative to any planet you like. Obviously, it makes the most sense to calculate it for the primary perturbing planet that's affecting an asteroid or a comet. So almost everybody does this for Jupiter because it's the big boy in the solar system. But for near-Earth asteroids in relatively circular orbits, which are the ones we're looking for, 
Earth is the, the main perturbing object. So you can, you can plug in Earth's semi-major axis here and get an approximation of um, the, the energy relative to Earth. You can then use that Tisserand parameter to, to estimate the velocity of the, um, of the approach relative to Earth's orbital velocity. And you can see just if the Tisserand comes out to be 3, then this turns into 0, and 0 velocity is a nice number. Um, so asteroids with, with Tisserands close to 3, for reasons I won't go into, they can't be higher than 3. They've got to be, well, because you don't want to have a negative number there. Um, so t or asteroids that have Tisserand parameters just under 3 are, are good targets. Here's a list of um, a number of asteroids that might pop out in, in your various studies of which ones to pick. Um, have you talked at all about orbit determination accuracy and orbit condition codes or the minor planet uncertainty codes at all yet? Has that come up? Okay, let's talk about that briefly. Many of the asteroids that have been detected have not had their orbits determined very well. In, in, in a surprising number of cases, these asteroids have only been observed for a week or two at a time, uh, and then they go far enough away that, that they are uh, not visible anymore. And there are now so many asteroids being discovered that it's just hard to keep up with all of them. So many asteroids have quite poor orbit determination. The, the positional uncertainty in where it is can be millions of kilometers. So it's kind of like your car keys. You know they're around here somewhere, but you can't actually lay your hands on them at any given time. So the orbit condition code is, is one handy proxy for approximating this. It's on a log scale or, or an exponential scale, I don't remember which, where 0 is really good and 9 is really you know, lost and never going to see it again. Um, but so a lot of people will use this as kind of a first order filter. If the, if the U code at the Minor Planet Center or the OCC code at JPL is below, pick a number, then it's a good asteroid. And if it's not, then it's lost. But that's not really the right way to do this. Um, what we need to do is basically pick the asteroid that you're interested in and figure out how we're going to find it again. Because all of these asteroids will need more orbit determination work before we can send certainly a human mission and probably even a robotic mission to them. So the question is not, how good is the orbit determination today? The question is, how good can we get it in the near future? So what we've been doing is looking at, what are the asteroids that we would like to get to if we knew where they were? And then, when are the opportunities we will have to observe them again? When will they be bright enough at the right solar elongation angles with a small enough plane in the sky position uncertainty uh, that we can find them again. So you'll see some of them like one of my favorites, 2001 QJ142, uh, is a 6 on this scale, which means it's pretty poorly mapped. But it's going to be visible again in January, February, March next year. So we will know by next year whether we know where this asteroid is or not. Uh, we'll be able to, to track it down or not. Uh, and so next year, it'll hopefully be a lot better than that. Um, some of these, by the way, are, are really remarkably tiny. And, and I'm not in the camp that believes you shouldn't go to asteroids because they're small. I think you should decide whether they're interesting or not and then justify to everybody else why it's OK to go to one that size. Um, I concede that a 5-meter asteroid is probably not as interesting as a 50-meter one. Uh, but if you think about the fact that the Tunguska event and the Behringer Crater meteorite impact were caused by objects that were something like 30 to 50 meters across, an asteroid doesn't have to be that big to have a, a lot of practical interest for us humans here on Earth. Uh, and I suspect that even if you could only go to a 20 meter one, you might say that that's similar enough to a Tunguska-sized object that it would still be worth studying. 
Um, you get a sense of what some of the very small delta Vs are that are possible here. These are all for short, quote unquote, short missions. Uh, you can often reduce the delta V lower than this at the expense of additional time. And obviously, there's, there's some useful trade to do there. I don't mean to say that you can't consider you know, nine-month missions, for instance. Many of these objects are either lost or probably too small to, to go to. Oh, uh, sorry, one, one, one additional point. You might decide that you're not going to throw out small objects just because they're embarrassing. But we do have to have kind of a, an effective lower bound that we just can't find small objects again very easily. So many of these, even if you decided you were OK, it's still manly enough to visit Little Rock that, that um, you might not be able to do it just because you can't track it accurately enough. So that, that can set a kind of a lower size bound. It's something like the 20 or 30 meter size. And even then, many of those are hard to recover. Uh, but I, I leave some of these small objects in here partly because they, they offer us some hope that there are other bigger objects or better trackable objects that have similarly small delta Vs. There are just so many more little ones than big ones that the little ones kind of give us an indication of what orbits are possible. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so, so one of the big, uh, I'd like to think it's a debate, because um, I'm on the non-conventional side, so I hope it's a debate or otherwise I've already lost. But one of, the, one of the topics for debate is, what do we do about precursors? And I think everybody agrees that precursors of some sort are a really good idea. Uh, the first step, obviously, is to do the better surveys, and that, that may count as a precursor mission in terms of just the, the telescope that finds lots of targets. Um, and then the question is, what do, you, what do you need to know about the asteroid you're going to go to? Um, it would be wonderful if we could send a precursor spacecraft to the specific asteroid we're going to go to and learn an awful lot about it. However, that has some, and, the, and the, the dollar price of that specific mission is not terribly high, so it's easy to believe that that's a, a good thing to do. But it has some pretty big impacts on the program. If you decide, for instance, that you want to go to... Uh, 2000 SG344, say, which is the other greatest asteroid out there. Um, I don't know that we can actually plan a mission to that today because we may not have good enough orbit determination, which means you may have to wait for the next apparition, essentially, to do the orbit determination that lets you send the robotic precursor, which means that the human mission has to be, in this case, 30 years after that. So requiring that you have a robotic precursor may rule out, effectively, some targets. It also begs the question, if you send your robotic precursor there and you decide, and either the mission fails or you decide that you don't like that asteroid, do you have to start over again and wait another five years for the process of sending a precursor there? So my philosophy about this is, first, it's very clearly a good idea to send precursors to some asteroids similar to the kinds of ones we're going to go to, i.e. small ones. And if we can determine the spin rates or the spectral types of the ones we want to go to, then let's send some precursors to asteroids like that. In terms of making the decision about do we need to go to the very same asteroid we, we pick for the human mission, I would try to approach that if, from an engineering perspective or a, a scientific perspective. What are the things you have to know and what are the things you want to know about the asteroid before you get there? You have to know the orbit determination. You'd really like to know the spin rate. You'd probably like to know the mass and the composition. So what does it take to figure out those things? 
And a surprising number of those things you can figure out for some objects with Earth-based observation. Radar, in particular, is remarkably perceptive. There's other things you just can't figure out from the ground. Um, so then what you ought to do is decide, well, can I make my mission agnostic about those, those questions? Um, for example, we've been doing some work on uh, figuring out shape models of asteroids relatively rapidly when you get there. So maybe it's okay to not know the shape beforehand if you can figure it out on the first day after you arrive. Maybe that's not sufficient. Um, another one of the big questions is, so when I get there, how in the world are we going to attach instruments to it? How are we going to let astronauts grab on so that they can climb around and get around on it? That's obviously, or that's probably a very different device for a chunk of iron meteorite or iron asteroid versus a carbonaceous versus a stony nickel iron conglomeration, or a rubble pile versus a monolith versus a sandbox. But there may be solutions you can come up with that work for a broad variety of those. So maybe you, you don't actually have to know that as, as much as you'd think. So th those, I think, let us figure out what technical problems do we need to work on solving. And if your conclusion is that you have a list, and Andy presented a, you know, a pretty good list of what do we really want to know, then maybe that tells you that you do have to go to that same asteroid. But just be aware of the, the sort of schedule and programmatic consequences um, that that drives into when you can afford to go. I got that out of the JPL Horizons database, but it's actually I've meant to ask you about that because the close approach is not listed in the close approaches table, but the JPL Horizons database shows an observing opportunity at a close range. Then the ephemeris, the well, both the ephemeris, yeah, the the orbital ephemeris, but also the observational azimuth elevation, you know, right ascension declination range stuff. Um, so I don't know what the answer is, but we better figure that out. <laughs> yeah, sure. So for the so there are three categories there. One is space, one is lost, and one is space based. Yes. So space based are the ones which can be found by a precursor mission, is that what you um, Space-based and lost are somewhat arbitrary. It just was kind of a function of uh, when I was looking at that and how charitable I was feeling that day. But basically, if there's a date here, that means you can see it from Earth sometime prior to the launch date for the mission. If there's not a, loss, a launch date, there are some asteroids that may be recoverable with a space-based telescope, either one that's in Earth orbit and therefore can see a different set of solar elongation angles. Um, or in particular, what you'd really like is a spacecraft that is not following Earth around, that is someplace else, so that it can see the objects that are not right next to Earth. But even if you have that spacecraft, you can't necessarily find the really small ones or the ones that have very poor orbit determination, because you may not know where to look, or you may not be able to see them even if you're pointed in the right direction. So there will still be some of these that you just can't find again. Um, and there will be some of them that you could find if you made an effort and invested in the space telescope. Now, like I said, I, I didn't uh, make all of those judgment calls on the same day. Um, and I did some of them earlier and some of them later. So I, I can't swear that they are consistent in terms of what I, what I classified as space-based versus lost. But you can, I mean, you can imagine that an object that's five meters across, even with a good in-space telescope, you just may not be able to find it again. Um, 
Uh, it depends. The, the best one, the easiest one to get to that's of any reasonable justifiable size and a plausible orbit determination is 2000 SG344. And, and this is like if People Magazine had a, had a hottest asteroids list, this, this is the one that everybody picks in their surveys. Um, but my only problem with that is I want to go to an asteroid before I pay off my mortgage. And that's too, this is only accessible if you own a time machine. Um, so 2028 is too far in the future for me. So I would like to find something earlier than that. Um, we actually have talked about doing a mission to 2008 EA9. We, we picked that partly before we really dug into how hard it would be to find it again. And it, it's kind of a stretch. You'd, you'd have, yeah. Andy's shaking his head, and I can't disagree with him. Um, if you'd like a really early target, 2009 OS 5 is kind of a nice one um, because we, even though it's not well-known, well-determined today, there's an opportunity to, to observe it again in 2014. So you'll know six years before launch whether you have found it again or not. And you can probably get the orbit determination much better. Um, but that, you can see from the, the delta V column, that's not as easy to get to. So the Plymouth Rock concept can't get to that asteroid. Um, 2001 QJ142 is another one of my favorites just because... Being impatient, I like the fact that we could know next year whether that's uh, you know pinned down enough, um, and it's a pretty good size. But again, it's not not the easiest to get to. Um, Nineteen ninety nine AO ten is another one uh, that that's cropped up a lot. In particular, y you can tell by the you know the first four digits is the date of discovery. So nineteen ninety nine AO ten has been around a long time, um, and and people have been able to pick that in studies going back ten years, whereas you know, 2008 EA9 or, or uh, what's the most recent one? 2011 CL50 isn't very popular yet because most people haven't noticed that it's there. Um, but yeah, so, so 1999 AO10 is another one that's kind of popular. Um, it, its problem is that it's going to be very hard to find again, especially from the ground. So it just actually, the best answer to your question is my favorite asteroid is one that hasn't been discovered yet. Um, <laughs> I'll know it when I see it. But it's going to have the, uh, the low delta V of 2010 UE51, which we show here at 160 days. You could do this in like 90 days if you had a bigger propulsion system than Orion does. Um, but it's, it's tiny. Uh, so it's going to have a, a trajectory like that, but the size of you know 2001 QJ142 or something. And as Andy has pointed out, and, and I'll bring up on my upcoming slide, actually, it might even be yes. It's the next slide. Um, these basically, you know, don't think of these as the asteroids we're actually going to go to. These serve as the existence proof that there are good asteroids out there and that we are capable of finding them. And there's a relatively plausible expectation that we will find better ones relatively soon. So the best way to make an asteroid mission practical is not to invest in building bigger, faster, longer-duration spaceships. It's to invest in better telescopes. And the investment in that can be relatively, you know, much smaller compared to the cost of the spacecraft. This is a set of data that's basically the same Alan Harris log-log distribution plot that everybody else shows. But I don't like log-log plots because they hide the magnitude of things. So this is the number of asteroids that are the sort of clear boxes, the ones that are predicted to be out there. The dark boxes are the ones we've discovered yet. You can see there's a hell of a lot of mid-sized asteroids that have not been found. 
And just to give you a sense of perspective, the scale box on the top there is 1,000 asteroids. That's about how many asteroids we're discovering every year right now. So if we're patient, we're going to discover some more. And if we're impatient, we could improve that, that discovery rate um, for, a, for a pretty modest investment. And I should confess that I didn't think to update the numbers on this chart. Uh, so this is, you know, six months old. Um, but one of the other things that this really emphasizes is the asteroids we're going to go to are going to be modestly sized. They're not going to be the kilometer mountain-sized asteroids that most of the animations, especially right after the president's announcement, they all showed us going to things like Eros, which you know, would be a great place to send humans to, but it's just too hard to get to. Um, most of the objects in the solar system are pretty tiny. Uh, so you can feel slightly embarrassed about talking to your friends about going to a 50-meter asteroid, or you can decide that that's the most important one to go visit because those are the ones that are going to hit us next. Uh, you know, we pretty much almost know we're not going to get hit by a, a one-kilometer asteroid because we've found almost all of them. Certainly not a three-kilometer asteroid. Um, but there's, there's lots of 50- or 100-meter asteroids still out there. Uh, so in terms of you know, knowing, what, knowing how to deflect an asteroid is going to be a very different answer for different classes of objects. And I would argue that the small ones are the ones that we're most likely to want to know how to deflect. Okay, um, I threw this chart in here before I realized you were already going to have a presentation on radiation. So depending on how much you'd like to talk about it, we can go quickly or, or briefly. Um, a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that the, the solar flare environment you have to design for no matter what, basically. Uh, at least the way NASA has approached the requirements, we were required to design to protect for a pretty severe solar flare even just going from Earth to the moon, which is a three or four day trip. Um, and the requirement was to keep the dose down to 150 millisieverts from that, that solar flare. So there are no formal requirements for how you design radiation safety for long duration deep space missions, basically because nobody knows how to define those requirements yet. But a reasonable approximation for a few month mission is to, to design for that solar flare. When you start talking about longer and longer durations, I think it gets more and more likely that somebody will say, but you need to protect for two solar flares, or you need to protect for twice the King 1972 flare. Um, they actually, I think, started out saying you had to protect from like a four times the 1972 event and figured out that that was really hard to do. So uh, they, they reduced the requirement. So if you, if you treat cosmic ray, I mean, excuse me, if you treat solar flares as a fixed design requirement you're going to have to live with anyway, then the main design, uh, and I should say that fortunately, a reasonable requirement for solar flares isn't too hard to meet. Um, Orion has done some actually pretty remarkable work on, uh, and I, I should give that credit mostly to NASA rather than the Orion program specifically, um, on figuring out radiation environments inside spacecraft. If you look back at sort of the Apollo era, basically what they did is they said, well, the spacecraft weighs X tons, and it's this big around, so it's got an average thickness or average density of X grams per square centimeter, and so that would give you such and such an amount of shielding. What they do today is they basically take a CAD model of the spacecraft, populate every single piece of the spacecraft in there with its radiation properties, you know, how much does it absorb versus transmit versus scatter, and then they shoot millions of ray tracing paths through that to figure out What's a cosmic ray going to pass through on its way to hitting an astronaut's left lung? And then sort of aggregate all this data together. The gist of that is that 
By taking the stuff you're probably going to have on your spacecraft anyway and positioning it properly to fill in the thin spots um, and perhaps build a storm shelter, you can protect, protect from a solar flare reasonably easily. I'm sorry, I realize I'm not sitting anywhere near the mic. Are you guys able to hear okay? Okay. Um, you can protect from a solar flare relatively easily by, without having to go to great lengths to add parasitic mass or pick different design materials. Cosmic rays are a different problem. They are extremely hard to shield from um, without adding many, many tons of mass. Uh, so there's really relatively little you can do about them from a design standpoint. Uh, the, the two degrees of freedom you basically have are to uh, keep the mission duration short or you know, control the, the, the time aspect of it or to control when you do the mission. So the cosmic ray flux is modulated by the sun's magnetic field, which means it is strongest during solar minimum when there are a few flares, and at its greatest during solar maximum, excuse me, at its uh, least cosmic ray flux during solar maximum when there are more flares. So uh, depending on which of those, those radiation risks you're more worried about, you can pick which years you decide to do the mission. And of course, there's a, there's a slight catch here that nobody can actually predict the solar cycle very well. Um, we can predict it when it's predictable, but right now it's not being predictable. So I'm not too confident about the 2029, 2024 dates. Uh, life support consumables. I threw this chart in here because I was speculating that you might be having difficulty coming up with numbers for what the commodities are that you require. There are some good textbooks and papers out there. Um, but this is what we picked. There's a couple of subtleties that we included in here. For example, if you have, say, six tanks of water, it's useful to imagine that one of those might fail. Either it leaks or the valve doesn't open or something. So there are various design guidelines about how do you design in some contingency factors. We have also designed the spacecraft so that if there is a leak, as we discussed previously, you have time to patch that leak and then repressurize the cabin so that there's more than just the the direct consumable amounts in these quantities. There's some allocation um, for, for doing spacewalks and depressurizing or having accidents and depressurizing and then pressurizing again. Um, it, it turns out that at least for small vehicles like Orion, that the volumetric packaging is almost as important to figure out as the mass budgeting. This stuff just adds up to a fair amount of space after a while. Um, so, so don't just think of it as like stainless steel ballast that you can stick in a corner. You know, it, it ends up being relatively bulky, and especially things like the oxygen and nitrogen are in round tanks that don't fit in corners very well. So there can, there can be a fair amount of volume taken up in figuring this stuff out. How are we doing on time? Of course, I turned my phone off so it wouldn't ring during the lecture. Yes, go ahead. Yes, for... Two people, so your numbers probably are, are much more than that. Um, and they don't, this is for an austere mission, so they don't include showers, for instance, or. And for a 108 day mission, would you use an That's a very good question. I think that somewhere around six months is the, the transition point where a more regenerative system starts to make more sense. For a mission of, say, three months, I don't think there's very much of a mass savings because the recycling equipment you know, looks like a refrigerator in terms of mass and power and volume. Um, so for short missions, it doesn't help. For long missions, it clearly does. There's a, there's a transition phase in there. And one of the things we considered, again, we were slightly biased in that we were trying to make this work with the design we already had. But one of the things we considered is if you're on a deep space mission, you're five months away from getting home, 
you really can't tolerate a failure of that recycling system very well. So for today's technology, which isn't quite as, as reliable as we'd like, we were willing to take a mass penalty to get back the comfort of you know, basically having tanks with valves that, that are not especially likely to fail and are relatively easy to have redundancy for. So this isn't necessarily the lightest weight solution for a five or a six month mission, but there's those other issues of, of you know, cost and reliability that played into it. Um, now, one of the things that would say is that answer is probably also um, you know, year dependent in that if you're doing a mission relatively soon, you pick one answer. If your mission is in 2030, you can plausibly invoke better recycling technology that is you know, lighter weight, more reliable, um, and you can point to that as, as something that would be a development goal leading up to the program, or, or even really you know, 2025. That's plenty of time to develop the system. Um, but, but one of the other things to keep in mind with that is that you probably also then want to test that hardware on something like the International Space Station for six months, nine months, a year, two years, some, you know, maybe some multiple of your mission duration to be confident that it works. So that would play into when would you be willing to take that kind of technology for granted. Yeah? Could you share a little bit about your rationale for how that you use to arrive at these numbers? I know that your nitrogen numbers... Yes. Good observation. They... The, the nitrogen numbers are so that the, the body doesn't, you know, particularly metabolize nitrogen. So that it's not a consumable in the sense that the others are. So it's mainly driven by um, leak rate, which turns out to be pretty small for the Orion design because it's an all-welded design. It's driven by how many times you expect to have to repressurize the capsule. So if you're going to depressurize either to do a spacewalk or because you're going to imagine that you got hit by a micrometeorite and you're going to have to patch it and repressurize it, that drives the number. So the amount you need per month is a relatively small number. What you're seeing here is that we passed a threshold where we had to add a tank. So we had, I don't know how many of the standard design has, two or three or something or one. Um, we needed a little bit more because of the duration, which caused us to add a tank, which caused us to change the way we approached the reliability question. Basically, if we had more tanks, the odds of one of them not opening correctly was greater. Um, so we put more nitrogen than you would expect to need in those tanks. And then that answer doesn't change for, for between 150 to 210 10 days. So because it's driven mostly by the number of depressurization cycles, it's not strongly... Uh, duration dependent. But obviously the answer is very specific to our particular design, so it, it wouldn't necessarily apply. Any other questions? Okay, one of the obvious shortcomings of the basic Plymouth Rock design is it's really, really cramped. I freely admit I would not volunteer for a mission in it, although I have found a few people who would. Um, so we thought about, okay, in the same spirit of, uh, and the other drawback was it's really not the best way to do spacewalks. And if you're going to go to an asteroid, some people have said you could just, you know, teleoperate devices there. Screw that. If you're going to an asteroid, get out, you know, touch the surface with your gloves, do what the humans are really good at. Um, so we wanted a, a, a spacecraft that could sort of better support EVAs, meaning you could have uh, more gear on the outside, you'd have places to attach this and store this. Um, 
and, and more living space. This is a notional variation on the Orion spacecraft that basically takes the same internal structure and the same internal systems and, and changes that structure to give you a cylindrical uh, habitat on the, the vehicle that's not coming back. That gives you more room. It actually saves weight, and it lets you um, have, have space on the outside of the spacecraft that's not constrained by reentry, so it's allowed to have handles and storage boxes and things like that. Um, and we have MMUs, manned maneuvering units, shown here for a sense of, uh, of scale. Yeah, so you were asking about the nitrogen tanks. I think we had, um, there are some in the service module, and we had to add, in this case, two on the, on the supplemental spacecraft. So depending on how many of those we were, and these are the same size that are used in the service module today. So depending on how many of those we had, that affected what the amount was that we ended up in there. Okay, so our conclusion was that um, asteroids are an interesting and relatively new set of targets for human missions. There are worthwhile scientific things we can do there, worthwhile exploration objectives. And because essentially all of them have been discovered in the last 15 years, uh, they are not something that people had previously really taken into account um, in terms of exploration planning. If you, if you think back to the Apollo moon landings, there were only, I think, 27 known near-Earth asteroids back then. And even if you think back to, um, say, when Shoemaker-Levy 9 hit Jupiter, which was one of the things that really made people start taking the impact risk seriously, I think there were only something like 300 known near-Earth asteroids. Today, there's 8,200 or something. Um, but of that large population, only a very, very small fraction are plausible human targets. And so that reemphasizes the point that we ought to be looking harder for, for more of those targets. We did conclude that round-trip asteroid missions are comparable in difficulty to lunar landings. A lot of people will look at the delta V numbers and say, obviously, it's only half as hard. Difficulty is not measured in meters per second, so there's a lot more to it than just the delta V. The fact that it's a longer trip you know, kind of increases the difficulty relative to the, the propulsion involved. But there's also advantages like you're not uh, building a lander and, and really the landing and ascent from the moon. I, I, I spent part of my time designing the Altair lander under Constellation, and, and that would give us the willies in terms of the complexity and the, the issues that could happen there. So there's, there's parts of it that are easier, parts of it that are harder than a lunar mission, but on average, it, it works out to be a similar kind of difficulty. And we concluded that our, our dual Orion approach would probably work. It's, it's probably the smallest, barest bones version of a mission that you would do. Um, but it, it kind of gave an indication, an early indication of what the, the degree of difficulty of these missions might be. All right, with that, I'd like to open it up to, to questions on any topic I can be helpful with. Um, and I will also be hanging around this afternoon and probably part of tomorrow morning, and I'd, I'd be happy to work with, this, with the student groups uh, on, on anything that you'd like to talk about. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.